This Relay Radio podcast is brought to you by New Intruvix 2 Herbicide from FMC. New Intruvix 2 Herbicide is an all-in-one formulation that gives you the best of both worlds, fast-burning activity and long-lasting systemic action for more consistent broadleaf control pre-seed to cereals. See your local retailer today. It's time for Real Egg Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Real Egg Radio and RealEggCulture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Egg Radio. And welcome to Real Egg Radio here on Rural Radio Channel 147. I am your host for the day, Lindsay Smith, as it is Tuesdays with Lindsay. I've got a great lineup for today's show, some really cool stuff happening, some not so cool stuff happening, and of course, a clip from The Agronomist. So on today's show, you are going to hear, first off, my discussion with Aaron Sumrall. He's with The Pig Brig. And yes, you absolutely want to find out what the heck the pig brig is. Um, I promise you, after you listen to this radio show, you are going to head to YouTube, you are going to Google it, and you are going to go on a YouTube spiral like I did. Um, and it's super cool. But Aaron's not just here to talk about the pig brig, because actually, it's really more about getting a handle on the wild pig problem in North America. And for good reason, the United States is quite concerned that Canada's wild pig population is going to be the one that is a giant issue for the U.S. Why is that? Well, I'm going to ask Aaron that question, and he's going to explain it to you. And I have a feeling all of us are going to be checking our trail cams a little bit more closely, because if you've got wild pigs in the area, there's actually a squeal on pigs program here in Canada. If you if you suspect you have wild pigs in the area, or if you catch them on the trail cam, you actually should let uh, the powers that be know, because we're trying to get a handle on just how bad this problem is in Canada. And from there, we're going to jump to our product spotlight with uh, Jamie Puchinger of Farming Smarter and talk about their upcoming conference. So that's exciting. And uh, then I've got a discussion with Brian Innes. We've got a program that's been cut or will be cut as of March 31st on the soy quality side that is ringing some alarm bells, certainly for our export markets. So that's uh, on the docket. And then to round out the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Yvonne Lolly and uh, Peter Johnson, of course, here of Real Agriculture. Uh, I've pulled a clip from last week's episode of The Agronomist to talk about cover crops, but a bit differently. We certainly talk about some of, you know, how to get them in the ground, how early, how late, species selection. We covered a lot of that on the overall show, but I pulled two clips that really speak to how complicated the question can be when it comes to cover crops. And when you combine that with potentially moisture limiting, i.e. absolutely no rain, um, it actually changes the conversation away from cover crops entirely and how to manage any crop to achieve what you're trying to potentially achieve for cover crops like decreased erosion, nutrient cycling, weed suppression, all of those good things. So really cool thing there that we we managed to snag and, and really talked about this idea of do no harm. So check that out. That's at the end of the show. Now, uh, I will be uh, the host of this coming week's Farmer Rapid Fire. So looking forward to that. I'll be on on Thursday. We've got a couple of really cool shows lined up this week. So there's a bit of a change in the schedule, including uh, not having an issues panel on Friday. But don't worry, we've got something even better. Uh, but I did want to send a shout out to everybody who got back to me with their un I definitely am 
uh, the culprit here with some pretty significant uh, failings as a Canadian. But I want to say two things. One, there are some of you who don't know how to skate. And so, yep, okay, got it. Uh, There are some of you who do not like hockey, and that is also cool. Uh, But I'll have you know, to atone for my sins, I did go and catch a duchy the other day and enjoyed a duchy with my Tim Hortons coffee. And so I feel somewhat vindicated. All right? All right. Okay, without further ado, let's take a break, and I'll be back with Aaron Summerall right after this. We're at the Keystone Agricultural Producer Meeting. We're at their annual general meeting. Now we're going to be talking to the executive director with CAP. It is Brenna Mahoney. So let's talk about CAP. So Keystone Agricultural Producers has been around for 40 years. We're celebrating our 40th today, actually. So we're launching into our 2024 year. We're a general farm lobby association here in the province of Manitoba, representing all Manitoba farmers on issues that matter to them the most. But I think an important message to get across about what's happened over the past year with CAP is the board has been working on a new strategic plan to position us to be able to deal with the advocacy issues that we're having, to make sure that we're doing the right engagement and outreach with not only members, but the public, government, decision makers, and also making sure that we're aware of what's the regulatory modernization environment, that it's a moving target. And if we're not ready as an organization to deal with that, it doesn't matter what issue comes or what issues are currently going on, we're not gonna be able to be successful in resolving them. Have you heard of Vantage Egg? They're a manufacturer and distributor of liquid fertilizers and they want to work with you. They want to learn more about you and your goals and build a relationship centered around high value products and a customized approach. For more information on Vantage Egg, call Paul Sinkovich at 778-919-3370 or visit vantage.egg to get started today. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio here on this Tuesday. It is Tuesdays with Lindsay. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and this segment is brought to you by the Crop Connect Conference. Time is running out to register for the 2024 Crop Connect Conference. Join us February 14th and 15th at the Victoria Inn and Convention Centre in Winnipeg for insightful speakers, crop-specific information, networking opportunities, and more. Register today at cropconnectconference.ca. All right, for this segment, now, if you haven't heard about the potential wild pig problem here in Canada and the U.S., well, you're about to learn a whole bunch about it. This isn't a new problem necessarily, but it's definitely one that's been getting a lot of attention recently as provinces, Canada as a whole, and of course the U.S. are working together to try and first quantify just how bad the wild pig problem is and get ahead of it. To talk about why that's so darn important and why it's so difficult to capture these pigs, I'm joined by Aaron Semrall. He's with Pig Brig, and he joins me now out of Texas. Thank you. I'm glad I'm here. All right. So let's start with, and and honestly, if I don't care if you live in Canada or the U.S., if you haven't heard about the wild pig problem, uh, you better, because this is a, a big one and a growing one. But if you could put it into some perspective, either for your state or your country or, frankly, North America, uh, what are we tackling here when we talk about the wild pig problem? Well, one of the things that we're looking at is it's just an, an exponentially increasing problem. Uh, right now in the states, uh, about 35 states have breeding populations of pigs, and, and they're moving uh, pretty proficiently across the United States and really not any place that's limited to where they can go or what they can do just because of the adaptability of the species. Now, in Canada, we're seeing that 
just on the cusp of becoming a major issue there. And, and the reason for that is that they, they're a little bit longer in trying to get their foothold in place to be able to establish those breeding populations where in Canada right now, most of those sounders uh, and the sounder of pigs is just a family group of pigs is uh, is very transient. So it's somewhat making management a little bit harder, making population estimates in Canada a little bit harder. But the one thing that's definitely uh, in place for what you have up there for your pig populations to grow off of is just unbelievable amounts of, of agriculture that's available to those pigs, as well as a lot of plants and animals and uh, and so forth that they can make a food resource out of as well. So, and this is one of the things that, for anyone who's sort of looked into this issue or has heard about it in their own backyard or own area, uh, there was a there was a time where you know the going sort of thought was that a domesticated pig that got out or released into the wild they they simply wouldn't survive. How did we end up in this problem? Is perhaps one of the questions I have. Right. Well, and and the and the, and the problem started the same way in the states as it was what we're seeing in Canada. I mean, and whenever pigs were brought over back. 500 or so years ago, they were brought in as a livestock species, and they just, uh, as the westward expansion of human population occurred, there were a few pigs that were dribbled across the landscape as people moved from east to west, and those pigs had to adapt, they had to evolve, they had to acclimate to whatever environment they were exposed to, and in Canada, is no different. So, I mean, there's a lot of those places that are in, 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 around the, the, the Canadian landscape that have had domestic pigs that, for whatever reason, they're no longer in, in domestic captivity. And, and the, the thing that we need to think about with the term feral, whenever we think feral pig, well, we got feral cattle, we've got feral dogs, feral cats. What that just means is that at some point in the lineage of that species, they were once domestic. Well, whenever we think about pigs, after a pig has been forced to live off of the landscape without human intervention or human assistance for about two months, they are now considered feral. So they could have very, very well started their life as a domestic species. It could have been a domestic adult that had already went into the breeding cycles that once they were put out on that landscape then, then, and, and have learned how to adapt and evolve, they're now feral. So what that situation brings to the table in Canada is a little bit different than what we see in the States is that there's a large influx or a large percentage of the, p- the pigs that are on the landscape up there in a feral capacity that are extremely high purity levels as far as the direct species uh, or, or subspecies like a Hampshire or a, or a Landrace or a Yorkshire or something like that, which means that those animals are, are, are bred to breed. So you can definitely put a lot of pigs on the landscape in a short period of time, but the 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 thought that you had alluded to there about the the Canadian environments holding these pig populations in check, we just need to remember too about the adaptability of the species. We also need to remember too what is one of the best insulators out there on the landscape that's naturally provided. It's snow. Mm-hmm. So in the wintertime, whenever it may be negative 60 above the level of the snow, those pigs just simply burrow under a pretty solid blanket of snow. They combine body masses, body capacity. They share heat. They survive. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. given the winter does take quite a few of those younger adults or younger piglets, but if they can live through that first winter, we have an, uh, an animal that's not likely going to succumb to weather conditions moving forward. Which is terrifying. Anyway, I've worked with pigs. It's a bit scary, I'll be honest. No, right. Um, right? I mean, they have sharp teeth, and they are, they're omnivorous. I mean, they, they'll eat crops, right. they'll eat plants, they'll eat truffles, frankly. Um, we, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing for us down here is we say that they'll eat everything with a calorie. 
There, so, there you go. Yeah. So, but that does bring us to the question of, of course, the environmental impact, the biodiversity impact of having wild pigs on the landscape. I mean, I've certainly heard of, of the extensive crop damage that they can do. What is the biggest right. concern, at least from the biodiversity perspective? Because, of course, there would be a, a biosecurity issue, too. But on the biodiversity side, what are we worried about? Well, the biodiversity side, too, is, is also going back to the fact that they're an opportunistic omnivore. Uh, about 90%, 80 to 90% of the pig's diet is going to be made up of plant matter, with the remaining being animal matter. And with that animal matter, it's going to be anything from grubs to beetles to deer fawns to sheep and goat, lambs and kids, things of that nature. So when we think about the biodiversity impacts, we also can need to think about some of the or the endangered species that depend on microenvironments to sustain their, their capacities. They may not live in a, in a very broad area, but they're completely dependent on that habitat. Pigs come into those habitats that are extremely sensitive already. They destroy that habitat, then thus goes the species. We're seeing that not just uh, in the United States. We're seeing that all over the planet where pigs come into those, those niche environments and they're, and they're eliminating species very readily. The other thing that we need to think about with regard to biodiversity is that, you know, I mean, you can talk to farmers and ranchers and you bring up the, the, the word coyote to a farmer or rancher, and usually it gets followed by several adjectives to describe that species. But you think about where that's going to, the pig indirectly affecting the farmers and the ranchers with the, the coyotes kind of stuck in the middle is because a lot of Canada is prairie environment type settings, and those have extremely high populations of rodents and, 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 and mice, rats, voles, whatever the case, that is the staple of food for your coyotes, for your bobcats, your foxes, or wherever wolves are, anything like that. Well, pigs, being an opportunistic omnivore, they find a population that's there being those, those types of rodents. They're going to stay on that food source until it's exploited uh, or eliminated. Well, what, what now do those predators have to do in order to basically make a living? If those natural food sources aren't there anymore, then what are they going to do? Are they going to shift focus to your deer fawns? Are they going to shift focus to hitting your turkey poults a heck of a lot heavier? Mm -hmm. Or are they going to work on your kid goats and lambs? Because they have to make a living too. The other thought is too, for those urban environments, if that, that, that food source for some of those predators are eliminated in rural environments, they're going to move closer to town, closer to where people are, because people means uh, there's going to be some type of a food source there, whether it be through trash, pet food, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So the, so the other thing about it is one of those one, – I live in Texas, so one of the things we definitely enjoy in the fall and the wintertime of the year is the, the waterfowl migrations down to, to where I live and, uh, and the recreational opportunities that come that way. But whenever those birds leave and they go back home, mo- uh, those birds, she, uh, ducks, geese, whatever else – Think about where they nest. They're nesting on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So whenever we have those birds molt and they start nesting and they do what they do, they're completely vulnerable to whatever is a ground nesting predator that's, that's on that landscape. So whenever you find a few of those natural predators, again, too, with your, co- your coyotes and your foxes and so forth, they take a few. But whenever a pig would get into some of those locations of those ground nesting birds, they just completely decimate it. So... It's one of those things that, that wherever the pig goes, destruction follows. And, and that's something that has been the mainstay since the first hoof put its, it put its stuff on the ground back in the 1500s. Uh, the one thing that we keep thinking about, we keep hearing, is that from, from the states is that the pigs are, are going to populate the northern states 
from from the south and that's probably not as accurate as what we need to think about one thing it's different that sets the canadian pigs apart from the the southern i guess strain of, of wild pigs is uh is simply explained in the in, in a, a wildlife rule that's called bergman's law or bergman's rule and the further north a species goes the the they they kind of change their morphology to the fact that they're having shorter legs bigger bodies, more robust bodies, smaller ears, so forth and so on, as compared to what we see in the South where we have animals that are much longer-legged, bigger-eared, because pigs don't sweat, as you're aware of. And and with a longer-legged animal, bigger-eared animal, uh, smaller-framed animal, they're built for expelling that excess heat. Where where you're at, they they have to retain that heat, where you can take that pig that's in those northern latitudes and much easier move that pig south and be able to easily uh, occupy some of our northern states much easier than what we can take our southern pigs and move them to the north. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who is very short and wide, I'm well adapted to northern climates, so I get it. Right. But it's just like right. just like this. It works across species. Okay, so now one of the one of the considerations here as well is to that point. They are very hardy. They are very resilient. Um, they will wipe out a food source wherever they may go and then move on to the next one. They're also incredibly difficult to get rid of. Why is that? Right. Well, one of the things is just because pigs are not confined to a range like what you may find in other, another species. Like if you have a, a deer population, uh, deer tend to stay within a given range throughout, throughout their whole life. And whatever is available within that life, they have to consume or they just they don't make it. Uh, pigs are not limited to that, le- to that capacity. If a pig needs to basically load the wagon and move 50 miles away to find something to eat, they can easily do that. They're they're going to go wherever um, wherever their 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 stomachs tell them to go. Okay, so whenever things are are not plentiful in the areas where they're at, uh, they'll typically follow a watershed because water is the mainstay. If there's water there, they can they can flip over enough rocks. They can dig under a few places there to find enough beetles and grubs to stay alive as long as there's water. So they're going to follow those 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 uh, waterways to wherever they got they have to go, and it very. I mean, we do know that we've got some some adult animals that that we found that may travel fifty sixty miles uh, for either breeding or, or nutritional purposes. So we we've got to remember that that whenever pigs are in a given area on the landscape now, they're not necessarily going to be there next month, and that makes management of that species extremely uh, difficult in most in most cases. Mm-hmm. Now, there are several uh, initiatives, of course, in Canada as well. This is definitely an issue that has, I, in the last few years at least, we've been hearing more about. Um, but we're running out of time, so I want what is the pig brig? I can't go somewhere with it because it's a great name, but I have in my head right, what I think right. it is. What is it really? Right. Well, pig brig is the only net patented trap on the planet designed for catching wild pigs. Um, what the pig brig is, like I said, it's a net that's fashioned in a, in a form, in a way that uh, I guess magnifies the rooting tendencies of feral pigs to push into and under things, and it functions much like a fish trap. So uh, in the set capacity there, the, the pigs will push under the net, push into the net, and then they just can't come back out just the, the way that a fish trap would work. Uh, the thing that what we do uh, in management with pigs, implementing the pig rig is, is that the, the, the net itself is, like 53 pounds. The total trap system is about 85 pounds. So we can move, like we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, yeah. the, the mobility of those species to just cover the landscape. 
we don't have to worry about loading up a truck or a trailer and being able to and having to follow those pigs into into locations that are inaccessible. We can literally put that that trap in a backpack and take it wherever we want to go. We can put it on a snow machine. We can put it on an ATV. Uh, we can do whatever we need to and go to where the pigs are uh, to manage those animals at the place that they're at uh, and, and, and do so quickly. So the way that the, the pig rig is employed is, is that either you can use the trees that are existing in a landscape, which is in those backcountry situations and harder locations to get to, that is top shelf way to do that. Or if you're more in an area that, that may be uh, agricultural or something of that nature, it's easier to get to a little bit, uh, is that we use simple T-posts that you use for livestock fencing. And, uh, and we can move those traps quickly, easily, efficiently, and, uh, and not have to worry about leaving a big footprint on the land trying to cross it. Now, for those who are potentially looking for more information on the wild pig problem, on what's happening in their area, um, or even the pig brig, where, where would you suggest a, a farmer or a landowner start if trying to find some information on this? Well, one thing is if you're looking at your Canadian residents up there, the, the, the first point of contact that I would, I would become familiar with for the Canadian residents is, is stay in touch with your squill on pigs, uh, effort that's going on across the, the, the Canada landscape everywhere. Uh, squill on pigs is, is definitely a sounding board and they know what's going on in those northern latitudes. As far as everything pigs, that what you may want to, to explore is our website and that is pigbrig.com. Um, Whenever you get there, you'll find everything that we have from education uh, to products to resources, videos, um, anything that you could that you would think that you would need in a pig management protocol. Uh, we've got it right there. But that's pigbrig.com. The other thing that what you can do once you do get to that site, if you have questions there, you can call us directly. We do not farm out anything that we do to somewhere else. You're going to talk to me or someone on our pig brig team, and we know specifically what to do to address your particular situation in your region, or we know who you need to contact in that given region. But to contact us via phone, uh, simple phone number is 833-744-2744. So it's 833-PIG-BRIG, uh, and we'll be glad to visit with you. So uh, again, too, I'm, I'm spending some time in Canada in the past, and I'll be spending time in Canada again moving forward to try to make sure that we we get a thumb on the pulse of that pig situation and remove it. All right. Well, thanks for that, Aaron, and thanks for this and joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Let's take a quick break, and I'll be back with our Prox Spotlight about Farming Smarter's upcoming event right after this. Co-op knows your community because we live here, too. Our teams are your trusted partners with a range of expertise to help support your entire farm operation. And we're giving back. In the past five years, Co-op has invested over $1.1 billion in the prairies through building, upgrading, and expanding local facilities. And we've returned over $1.17 billion to Co-op members in the prairies. Co-op, we're all building something for the future. Here for your farm, here for your family. Learn more at coop.crs farm. When you see how fast Intruvix 2 herbicide from FMC smacks down narrow-leafed hawksbeard, volunteer canola, kochia, and those other problem weeds, you'll be saying, stronger and faster? Shut the front door. Apply it with glyphosate before planting cereals, and you'll enjoy cleaner fields faster while protecting your future glyphosate use. Cheese and crackers. Just how easy can you get? Intruvix 2 herbicide from FMC. Clean is good. See your local retailer. 
Protecting your nitrogen is smart. And a nitrogen granule with a polymer coating that releases in response to conditions that promote plant growth? Well, that's me. I'm the environmentally smart nitrogen granule that gives the nutrition crops need when they need it. Reducing nitrogen loss and increasing nutrient availability. Imagine feeding me to your fields. Me. Now, wait a minute. Hey, can I rethink this? ESN Environmentally Smart Nitrogen Fertilizer. Learn more at smartnitrogen.com. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and it's time now for today's product spotlight. Joining me on the line is Jamie Putchinger. I got it right. With Farming Smarter. How are you, Jamie? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. All right. So exciting. In a few weeks, there is an event happening in Lethbridge, February 14th and 15th. Tell me all about it. Yeah. So the annual Farming Smarter Conference is taking place at the Sandman Signature Lodge. And we have two days of excellent speakers with a trade show and some amazing food. Mm, That's very important. That's right. That. <laughs> I like that. Um, okay, so let's talk a bit about the agenda, of course, because you know the the people who attend make an event, but we're all there to experience uh, the speakers. Give me a sense of of who or what people will learn about when they attend. Yeah, absolutely. So we have two days of some amazing presenters. I'm very excited. Our topics are ranging all related to you know farm uh, management. We've got some crop production and we also have uh, Dr. Bart Lardner coming to talk about alternative pasture management. Um, Topics include things like fertility and uh, weeds and uh, insects and novel crops, specialty and row crops, uh, seeding systems on farm innovation and then our two keynote speakers Robert Angelic who is the largest farmland holder in Canada, as well as a Brazilian fertility specialist, uh, Dr. Lewis Prochnow. It sounds like a very good lineup. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, I would I would be in my glory. Let's put it that way. So now there's also, uh, there's a 4-H component to the program as well. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so every year we bring in the 4-H kids. Uh, they speak after lunch and typically they are uh, folks that have competed at sort of a bigger level and have won at some point. And so they come and uh, practice with our audience as well. And they do such an amazing job. I'm blown away every year at how great they do. Mm, it is. I, I, you're right. Sometimes um, it makes me think I need to practice more when I see some of these kids present. <laughs> They are pretty amazing. (laughs) Now, there's also an online auction happening. Yeah, absolutely. We use this event every year to raise money for the Southern Region for 4-H. And so if anybody has auction items, please reach out to myself and we'll get them in the auction. And anyone else that's interested in supporting uh, the 4-H in Southern Alberta, they can bid on items and it will be hosted through Pearlich Brothers online auctions. Very cool. Okay. Now, this is, of course, a Farming Smarter event. How much of the actual work that Farming Smarter does gets presented at an event like this? Yeah, we have the majority of our staff giving presentations on various uh, topics or specific projects. Uh, we've got, uh, obviously, Ken Coles is going to talk about on-farm innovation and some of his Nuffield learning. And we've got uh, Carlo Van Herk going to talk about uh, the precision planter and strip tillage canola project that he's been working on for the last three years and some of the results that have come out of that study and others uh, with canola. 
and uh, Mike Gretzinger is going to talk about novel crops and some of the innovations that have happened with that and sort of the ups and downs of, of those types of things. And Louis Barda is going to talk about row and specialty crops here in southern Alberta. And we also have Trevor Deering, and he's going to talk about the growth and evolution of commercial innovation here in southern Alberta. I did also forget to mention that we have a new employee starting. So Ashley Wagoner, she's going to be talking about reviving conservation agronomy and uh, the exciting program that we have uh, starting new this year. Oh, all right. Okay. So to to recap, though, so we've got the event happening February 14th and 15th in Lethbridge at, uh, at the Salmon. Uh, where can people go for the full agenda and, of course, also to register? Yeah, excellent question. Everyone can find the information on farmingsmarter.com. Navigate your way over to the conference page and you'll find all the information related to the event and the registration. All right. And it's just a few weeks away. So get out there, get it done. All right, Jamie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. We'll be back with more Real Ag Radio right after this. If you have a growing list of questions about getting more from your fields, know that Coke Agronomic Services has an answer for every acre. With a full spectrum of nutrient management, nutrient protection, and seed enhancement options, Coke Agronomic Services offers a deep portfolio of agronomically effective products, each designed to enhance yield potential, all available to help solve your problems. Find the answer that's right for your acres. Start by visiting cokeag.ca. That's K-O-C-H-A-G.ca. Whether you're in a career within an organization, starting your own business, looking for your dream job, running your own farming operation, operating a company in ag or food, or want to hone your overall life skills, this conference is for you. Celebrating over 10 years of bringing women in ag together, join the Advancing Women Conference in Calgary on March 17th, 18th, and 19th. Visit advancingwomenconference.ca for more information and to register. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio here on this Tuesday. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and this segment is brought to you by FP Genetics, innovative seed genetics for Canadian farmers. Contact your local FPC dealer or territory manager to discuss your certified seed strategy specific to your region. Visit fpgenetics.ca today. All right, we go now uh, to Mr. Brian Innes. He's the executive director of Soy Canada. And there's been a change in the government's direction on a particular program. uh, And that program is going to come to an end. So to talk all about it and figure out what on earth is going on here, we go to Brian Innes. Joining me now is Brian Innes. He's the executive director of Soy Canada. And on his way to some very exciting environ, uh, Brian, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Yes. Um, we'll get to the exciting trip you're about to uh, embark on in a minute. Uh, but first, let's start with some news uh, out of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada that, they, that they're putting an end to the soy quality program. So which program is this? Yeah, thanks for asking about it, Lindsay. It's been really important to the soybean industry over a number of decades. And it's a program that's run out of the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Research Station at Harrow, right in the southwest corner of Ontario, almost the birthplace of soybeans in Canada a number of decades back. It's a program that's been really helpful because it helps us to know the quality of our food-grade soybeans and help our customers to understand 
that quality as well so that we can bring new varieties to market faster. So now this is, was this a breeding program or an evaluation of the existing varieties that, and that farmers would be using? Great question. So the, the Harrow Research Station has been involved with soybeans for many decades with, with both breeding programs as well as the soy quality program. So the, quali- the soy quality program is a, and has been a program that works with the industry, monitors what's happening with the quality of our food-grade soybeans, and, is, and does that by testing them. So, for example, in practical terms, they're actually making tofu out of uh, samples submitted to the research station. They also test approximately 3,000 samples from our variety trials every year for all the food-grade varieties produced in Quebec and Ontario and Manitoba. So they function at, a, at, a, at many levels and have over their, their history, um, providing testing but also providing an, an insight into what's happening in the system and helping us to share that message with our customers. So now, so that's, I guess, the, the key part here is that clearly this isn't just a, yes, we should develop this variety or it's got these things. This is really about linking the varieties that we have or that are coming up with those end-use characteristics that would be so important to our export customers. Absolutely, because the challenging thing about food-grade soybeans is you know when a variety performs in the field, but in food-grade soybeans, it also has to perform for the customer. So over and above yielding well and being uh, resistant to disease and insects for the farmer, it also has to produce great tofu and yield, yield for the food manufacturing facility. So the Harrow program has really been that, that magic piece in the middle that works with seed developers, for example, as they're early in the breeding program to give them an indication of whether that variety is going to perform for the end-use customer before it gets to market, for example, in the hands of farmers. So, that, so when we think about this program, it's really connecting those two pieces to enable us to produce varieties that are good for customers and good for farmers. And so now, where does the, where does the soil quality program land uh, as of right now? And did you have any notice that this was a decision that was in the works? I had a number of discussions over the last uh, two years since I joined Soy Canada around where the industry wanted to go uh, with a food uh, soy quality program. As of today, uh, what we understand is there will be no more program after the end of March 2024. We've been in discussions at multiple levels with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and, and of course, the politicians um, who are both uh, responsible for Agriculture Canada and also, you know, res- uh, responsible for hearing from Canadians. And in our discussions, it was a very big surprise for us that Agriculture Canada is shutting down the program. We learned that just before Christmas. And uh, we've been engaged at, at many levels. Just last Tuesday, for example, we had a uh, delegation at the Harrow Research Station meeting uh, with the, the people, the researchers and the technicians who've been running the program. Of course, we also meet with members of parliament uh, from all parties and, and keep them apprised of the importance of this for the industry. And was there a reason given then that this will end at the fiscal year end for the government? Well, there are many reasons given. Um, in essence, it doesn't meet uh, Agriculture Canada's uh, requirements of what they want to have at their research stations. It's a really big disappointment for us at, in the soybean industry. Um, it's a huge value for us, and it, it plays uh, an important role that a private company or a, 
private testing company can't. And the, the challenge for us is it, this is the only place in Canada that performs testing of food-grade soybeans to provide this sort of information to the industry. Hmm. We, and we certainly, I mean, we have similar programs uh, for other crop types as well. So certainly something that, you know, as an industry, we rely on uh, to take those results and use them for uh, for selling uh, our commodities around the world. Um, so we'll, we'll certainly follow up on this. Um, you know, March 31st is, is end of the government year. So we'll see uh, perhaps if there's any change in between now and then. Uh, but... Perhaps in the good news column, you are about to embark on a really exciting trip on behalf of Soy Canada. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, just today, actually, we have a delegation of about 25 people headed off for our annual uh, Indo-Pacific mission. So we'll be going to to Bangkok and to Tokyo to meet with our customers. Uh, This has been a decades-long tradition in the soybean industry to bring our exporters and our growers together and present a common message uh, to our customers. We're really excited about it. And is this, so thinking about, you know, the government has, of course, been putting more focus on the Indo-Pacific region, opening an office there. Um, so, so I will point out perhaps the irony in cutting a soy quality program while simultaneously focusing on this area. But um, with, the, with the expansion of this commitment to the Indo-Pacific region, is this uh, trade mission larger than it typically has been, or is it, does it usually tend to be about the same? Last year, we had a record number of participants, uh, I think 25, 26, and we're almost at the same amount this year. Um, we have a very vibrant and diverse soybean industry in Canada. We have Uh, For example, 17 export members of Soy Canada. We have our farmers from the Atlantic Ocean to the Rocky Mountains. And so this this mission really reflects that diversity of our export members, of our farmers, and and supporting organizations. In the past, there's been been many missions over time. I think there's still uh, a lot of enthusiasm to reconnect after a few years of not being able to. We're seeing that play out in both our customers as well as our members. Um, but more importantly, what we see is uh, a lot of enthusiasm to come together and tell a Canadian story about Canadian soy and Canadian soy quality. Um, for example, when we meet with our counterparts in Japan, they are the most discerning uh, customers we have uh, for soy quality. Um, and so being able to, to meet with them and understand what they're seeing around quality trends for tofu production, for miso production, Natto, soy milk, and soy uh, sauce, for example, is really helpful for us as an industry to make that link between customer, exporter, farmer, and seed developer. Mm-hmm. And if no one knows what natto is, I highly recommend checking it out. It looks so cool, but as I've been told, a very acquired taste. So there you go. <laughs> it is. It's one of the fun things about our, these missions. We have our farmers taste the, the products that their soybeans are made into, I mean, for example, natto is actually about 30% of the uh, usage of all of our soybeans that go really? to Japan. We produce a lot of natto soybeans here, but when I asked at a conference of, of uh, farmers, no one had ever tasted it before, mm. uh, which, is, which is fairly common. We don't see it much here in Canada. So that's one of the more uh, enjoyable uh, parts of the trip is where we, we can allow our farmers and our industry to taste things made with their soybeans that they wouldn't necessarily see here at home. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. You let me know uh, which one becomes your favorite because I would love to try it. But as I've been told, it's a required taste. All right. Brian Innes with Soy Canada. Thank you so much and have a wonderful trip uh, overseas. 
Thanks, Lindsay. Great to speak with you. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, then I'll be back with a clip from The Agronomist talking about cover crop selection and making it work for your farm. CDC Endure is a new oat line from Alliance Seed. High yielding with excellent disease resistance and the quality end users ask for all in one great oat variety. CDC Endure provides the high beta-glucan levels to make heart-healthy products like breakfast cereals. For more information on CDC Endure oats, as well as any other products from Alliance Seed, check out allianceseed.com or visit any Alliance Seed authorized retailers. What's next for your fields? At Pioneer, delivering industry-leading genetics drives everything we do. From the scientists in the lab to our local teams with boots on the ground, we are determined to get there first. Developing top-performing products, proven in more growing conditions than ever before. Pioneer. What's next happens here. Visit pioneer.com Canada to learn more. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio here on this Tuesday. It is Tuesdays with Lindsay. I am Lindsay Smith, your host, and this segment is brought to you by MNP. You deal with many uncertainties on your farm. Managing risk should not be one of them. MNP's ag team specializes in risk management. Visit mnp.ca to learn how you can stay ahead of the game and plan for the unknown. Well, if you're a regular listener on this show, you know that one of my favorite things to do is grab a clip from the agronomists to share on this program. But this clip that I pulled is from our discussion on cover crops from last week's show. So you're going to hear from Dr. Yvonne Lolly out of the University of Manitoba, and of course, Peter Johnson, friend of the show, resident agronomist with Real Agriculture. And there's two topics we cover in this clip that I think are really important. The first one is the idea of, we, we focus a lot on what we're trying to accomplish with cover crops, what benefits cover crops offer. Uh, but there is the potential for an adverse challenge to using a cover crop. And so Yvonne Lolly started a conversation with the first do no harm sort of idea. And we take it from there. We then talk about some of the disease considerations, pest considerations that come along with cover crops and trying to make that decision easier. All right. So here we go. Here's Dr. Yvonne Lolly and Peter Johnson from The Agronomists. So you look at the no cover and the no cover, you know, with or without uh, some nitrogen doesn't really matter because there's nothing to take it up. You look at red clover and red clover gives us this massive boost in yield without nitrogen but notice the oat data, like we're actually statistically significantly hurting yield by growing oats after an, a wheat crop, oat as a cover crop, no applied nitrogen in the fall on that oat cover crop. And it, it's only six bushels, but it's so consistent that that is a statistically significant yield drop. If we put 50 pounds of nitrogen on the oats in the fall so that we get better root uh, get better biomass production and we change the carbon to nitrogen ratio in that biomass now i don't get a yield drag i actually get a nine bushel yield gain over the no cover and so when it comes to cover crop management and do no harm you on this this shows that if i just grow oats and i don't manage them appropriately man i can actually do harm and similarly, with, with cover crop rye, we know we can do harm to a corn crop, not so much to a soybean crop. So you start with do no harm, and then 
you, you start to look at ways that you can actually increase yield. And so I, I find this really amazing data. This is some of the first data that is actually showing a significant yield increase. Now, again, it, it disappears with full nitrogen, so you have to be a little cautious from that perspective. This is pretty, pretty impactful stuff. Now, and I this is, of course, to the, oh, sorry, yeah, I was going to say, Yvonne, go ahead. Speaks to the benefit of, of doing research and starting to think out of the box, right? Thinking about management of cover crops, right? Like we think, oh, we just put it out there, it grows, it does magic. But how can we take this practice or this concept and utilize it in our regions and adapt it to our regions? And this is where it's going to take agronomists working hard, making important observations so that we can dial these practices into our regions, into our rotations, and figure out what works. And then maybe we can push beyond the do no harm goal that I have right now, where we can mm-hmm. really be pushing some of these metrics forward, or at least bringing stability and finding reliable practices. Right. And and so, and that's what I think is really stunning about research like this is, is starting to tease out some of those answers of what is a management practice that likely has to happen in order for there not to be yield drag or those sorts of things. Because I do know in the farmers that I've spoken with and some of the farmers that I work with, that is one of their concerns is they they want to keep their soil covered. They want the benefit of out-competing weeds or or that fall cover, but they don't want to tie up nutrients for next year. They want to make sure that they're still setting up their crop for top yield potential. So, um, and, and so, I mean, we're anticipating that this is a concern and we have to address that. Pete? Management, management, management. If you don't, if you don't kill the red clover, you will not see that yield gain. The red clover will be a weed. And we've seen this in that trial I showed earlier with the, the eight years of data. We had red clover in at one site. They didn't get good fall kill. And we, we lost yield with the red clover there because it was a weed control impact. It wasn't really the root benefit, the soil benefit, the nitrogen benefit that we were after just because we sli- and we did harm because we didn't keep the full uh, package of management in place. It's really interesting. Lee Breeze at, at uh, MWAC on Friday, he said, when you, when you start using cover crops, it's just like learning to play a musical instrument or learning how to do tillage right. You have to learn how to do the management that goes along with that cover crop. And until you learn that management and perfect that management, you can do harm. Dr. Dave Hooker, who is in the chat, um, has a question. And I'm going to open this up, but we'll start with Yvonne. Uh, With limited moisture environments or years of limited moisture, is that the biggest holdback, do you think, to cover crop adoption? Or have farmers identified other reasons they maybe don't want to do it or don't want to do it again for prairie context yes prairie context moisture moisture is our biggest limitation to adoption in my mind right now it's what i'm thinking about you talked about growing season length and you talked about you know limited moisture if we are planting cover crops in the fall after harvest and there's no moisture to germinate that cover crop there's no cover crop reliable moisture in the fall is is an issue. Um, I've started looking at intercroppings that came out of the prairie cover crop survey as a strategy that prairie farmers were using uh, to try and get something growing ahead of that moisture deficit that we commonly have in the fall at harvest time. Um, I also think just, you know, 
you've got we've only got so much water to go around uh, this winter we don't have a lot of snow on the prairie so we got to think strategically about when we're going to have that biomass so i think in a prairie context hedging your bets and being ready is important uh, we know that we can grow the biomass and we have the moisture but in these dry times right now this is a difficult time to utilize this practice i think we've got to utilize our other tools in the soil building toolbox, like managing residue to try and capture snow, figuring out equipment ways to to spread straw and to to keep soil in place, place with residue that already exists. And then maybe in zones in our field where we have problem soils or where we have moisture or fields that you know are wet, those are the ones to start with right now when it's dry on the prairies. Now, Pete, the question of volunteer wheat does come up every year so so what's the difference is there a difference if i just let the volunteers and i just like is that not a cover crop why or why not and and so if you can spread the wheat uniformly if you have good chaff spreader that you actually can spread and and you can't by the way but if you could, because silly people are getting 55 and 60 foot headers and you just can't, you can't spread the wheat that far. The, the difference with wheat versus oat is that wheat has to be vernalized, right? It's a winter annual. It needs vernalization. It will never grow much above ground biomass. If all I want, want is roots, man, you can get a mass of roots out, out of volunteer winter wheat. If you can actually get volunteer winter wheat uniformly spread across the whole field. You're never going to get the, the, the same level of, of weed control, weed suppression, just because it, it stays short. And you're, you're not going to get the same amount of, of above-ground biomass. Russ has a great question. So Russ asks, and Yvonne, this is for you, but um, it plays into some of the questions we have in, in the East as well about pathogens and about the Green Bridge, about diseases. So are we worried, like club root, some of these that brassicas or pulse crops need and love? Are we worried about including some in rotation? Could that potentially... Uh, spread or keep some of these pathogens around or make them worse if we've got these species in our cover crop mixes? Cover crops are no different than crops. You got to manage for diseases and you got to manage that green bridge. If you're worried about it, you've got to manage for it. So, uh, yes, there, it's real. It's no, there's no magic bullet here. Uh, you've got to, if you're worried about club root, you got to make sure that your cover crop mix is club root compatible. And I think that's where we need some data, right? Uh, we need some screening for cover crops, especially for the West. We don't have that right now, but we're going to need it soon. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll just yeah, add to that, Lindsay. So uh, from a soybean standpoint, soybean cyst nematode, huge concern. And yeah. so we already grow too many soybeans. So I'm reluctant to put more soybeans in the rotation, but I'm really interested in terms of how much nitrogen they maybe could contribute to the, the subsequent corn crop. And I just don't think, I haven't seen that data at least. So I, I still want to look at it, even though I think that's a really valid valid comment that, that Russ has. And again... So we've yeah. got to look at, you know, we're trying to factor in a lot of things like cost of seed, how we're going to seed the cover crop. And then another layer is certainly thinking about uh, disease, insects, and Greenbridge, those sorts of issues. Yeah. Um, and, and so you've got to make some informed decisions, and that's why agronomists are important in being there to support farmers as they move into the seed practice. 
You just made pizza. Um, that and we talked about that and we talked about clover on wheat. Um, okay. So it, one of the things I want to dig into a little bit now though, and, and we don't have a ton of time, but definitely one of, and we've talked a bit about trying to measure some of the soil health benefits. We've got the development and we're trying to figure out what we can potentially uh, measure in our soil. So a few of the things we can measure and we can compare are things like soil organic matter. We can measure that. We can measure different rates of different nutrients. Um, Pete, I'll start with you. There was a time not long ago it was, you know, roots, not iron. And now it's like, ah, we need living roots. We need biomass. We need plant growth. How has that shifted? What do we sort of better understand? And what do we still want to better understand on the living root system and soil health? I mean, we haven't really been able to tie organic matter directly to soil health, but man, if, if that's not part of the holy grail, I don't know what is. And, and what's really interesting ab- about this research is that we, we now know that it's not just the residues. It, it, it's not just the root residues, the above ground shoot residues, but it's actually the root exudates. And depending on the plant, up to 50% of the carbohydrate can go out as root exudates. And we knew that the biology fed on those, but we did not realize that as they died, they could actually turn that into organic matter. It's called, it's the MAOM, which is mineral associated organic matter. The POM is particulate. And that's really what, what we thought was coming out of the residue itself. You know, this, this living roots and root exudates up to five times more soil organic matter produced than the above ground part of the plant. And so when you ask me about wheat, volunteer wheat is a cover crop. Well, as long as it grows a super root system, maybe it is as good as oat that grows the, the more biomass above ground. Uh, when we look at following an oat crop and grasses in general seem to do a little bit more of, of this uh, improvement than broad leaves in terms of how we have an impact on soil organic matter. Try You grow something after an oat crop, uh, my great f- friend Rob Templeman, wheat with oat cover crop, and he grows soybeans after that versus growing them after corn, and consistently a six-bushel yield increase. All right, I have to leave it there because, of course, we're out of time. But thank you so much for joining me here on Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147. Uh, thank you to all of my guests for making this show possible. I also get to host on Thursday, which I'm very excited about because that's the Farmer Rapid Fire. Okay, if you have any feedback on today's show, one 776 6147 or drop us a note across social media at Real Agriculture. And until Thursday, cheers, everybody. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Real Egg Radio podcast brought to you by New Intruvix 2 Herbicide from FMC. New Intruvix 2 Herbicide for Cereals delivers outstanding control of the toughest broadleaf weeds like volunteer canola, narrow-leafed hogsbeard, and kochia. See your local retailer for more information today.